hairs on my body started standing on end. Silent. Nothing there. I fought to get back into my body. You are going to be a vital importance of helping us convince the masses. Type 471. Type 471. Bridge to the other world. Bridge to the other world. Welcome to Type 471. I'm Sam Kitchen. Now, my guest today is someone, if you've ever watched TV, you know who this guy is. My guest today is Bobo, with whom you are doubtless familiar from the wildly successful Animal Planet show, Finding Bigfoot, as well as a host of other Bigfoot-related programming, and his own podcast, Bigfoot and Beyond, with Cliff and Bobo. This guy's got his finger on the pulse of all things Sasquatch. I always love talking to him. You know, I've been I've been looking into Bigfoot and researching Bigfoot for a very long time. But every time I talk to Bobo, he tells me something that just blows my mind. And I'm sure we're going to hear some of that today. So I always like talking to Bobo. Bobo, welcome to Type Force and One. How you doing, man? Good, sound good. It's about time to have the honor of waiting. Yeah. Yeah. I've been waiting. I think we had a little miscommunication going there. Like I was waiting for you and you were waiting for me, but you know, we, we met somewhere in the middle. That's so that's good. Hey, yeah. did, 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 did you tell me recently that you were on another podcast recently? Uh, God, I can't remember. Now. I know we do ours all like every week. Um, <laughs> I, no, I, no, no, I haven't done any in a long time. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Uh, Cause like, Cause I, don't, I don't have anything. I mean, I, you've done me some favors. So I owed you, but I, I, what my position has been is that I'm uh, holding off until I got something that I can talk about. And I got some projects in the plans that I'm going to talk about. I could just say this. They're, they're historical Bigfoot accounts. Yeah. Going back pre, 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 actually they're, uh, they're all pre like 1930. No shit. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. I know you don't want to get too far into that, but that's, I love this historical Bigfoot stuff. Like it's, that's, that's kind of like a meat and potatoes kind of thing. You, you learn a lot when you delve into those areas. And well, I, even though we can't really get into it, I look forward to seeing all that, that that's coming up, but I'm glad to hear that you haven't been on any other podcast. Cause I was going to get jealous for a second. Like you cheated on me or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, nothing like that. I've been true blue, Sam. True blue. Oh man, I I appreciate that. You're you're a faithful guy. So, like, in terms of you owing me favors, like, what what did we do? What what? Uh, how did we first uh, come together? You, let, let's hear you talk about it. Well, I got a call from Rowdy. He was uh, working. Rowdy Kelly. He's part of the Bluff Creek Project, and he's one of the film commissioners for uh, Humboldt Del Norte Counties. Cause they film a lot of stuff up here because of the redwoods and this and that. And they were um, filming some Bigfoot stuff. And he said, Hey, I need a couple of witnesses for this uh, Bigfoot documentary they're doing with Robbie Knievel. And I'm like, All right, huh? Robbie's, you know, he's, he's uh, you know, I've known that guy, known who he was since I never met him. But, you know, I was like, Yeah, it'd be cool to just go hang out. And they said, that, You know, give me 
buy lunch and dinner and give me gas money to come up. And I was like, yeah, sure. I got the day up. I'll come and see what's up with Robbie doing this. And then ended up hitting it off with him and stayed, you know, filming for the rest of that uh, movie. Then we did another one that's still getting edited. And that's the one we did with you. So I had to get, we were filming around Mount Shasta and I was looking for witnesses in uh, Shasta. I remember reading your report on the BFRO back in the day. And so I got a hold of you that way. And then, um, yeah, you got to hang out a couple of times since then and had a good time. Yeah. Yeah. It was some good times. And, and speaking of Robbie Knievel, like we were shooting at the producer's house and it turns out that, that this producer Warren is the curator or owner of the Knievel estate or something like that. And we were, we were shooting some scenes out there and, uh, I mentioned, or, or well, actually what, what happened first was that um, I was wearing some some stuff that had that had brand names on it, and uh, he didn't like that because you know you didn't want to you didn't want to get billed for these brand names. So like I had to change my clothes, so I had to change into these things that were like all Knievel related. And then later in the <laughs> and then later in the evening, like it got cold, and I mentioned that I I left uh, my jacket back at the cabin, and so Bobo goes into the house he's like oh i'm sure warren has something for you and he comes out and uh and and bobo bobo's like bringing me this jacket that is like this original evil knievel jacket so like the whole night i'm wearing this this uh $30,000 original evil knievel jacket and all this all this knievel gear so like bobo thought it was funny as hell to dress me from head to toe in all things, in all things Knievel. <laughs> like, it what? was great. He had a shirt, Robbie Knievel shirt, Robbie Knievel hat, and an evil, an evil jacket. It was like, it was like, I was just laughing. was like, wait, that guy's got a real fetish for the Knievels, and none yeah. of it was yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like the ultimate Knievel fetishist over here. <laughs> According to you, that is. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, so. I, you must have told your story, I'm sure, you're sitting on here to your listeners already, huh? Well, actually, that's what I was just going to get into. Like, we, we first connected over my sighting, and I haven't really fully explained my sighting yet. So I was thinking, like, I'll explain it, and then you and I can talk about it, because it, it has some interesting and unique Sasquatch behaviors in it. You, you want to get into that? Sure, yeah. All right, cool. So I'll just kind of briefly go over it. Um... Like I was 17 years old and I was in Redding, California on, uh, it was like in the middle of summer, just hot as hell. A friend of mine and I were, were hanging out in Redding at two o'clock in the morning. We were bored out of our minds and we decided to go up to Whiskey Town Lake, uh, which is to the west of Redding. And, uh, so we go up there because, uh, our friends would hang out at this popular beach up there called Brandy Creek Beach. And uh, we wanted to see if, our, if any of our friends were there. We got up there. It turns out it's completely deserted. Not a soul around. I pull into the parking lot and park anyway. And uh, on the left side, uh, it's, so I pull right into the front, right? The, the, the spot closest to the beach. And on the left side is a stand of pine trees. On the right side is this restroom area slash snack bar area. Uh, and there's a, there's a sandy pathway right in between the two. So I start walking down there and my friend got immediately sketched out. Like he didn't want to go any further. So he stayed pretty much close to the restroom area for some reason. I'm still not sure why. Um, 
and, and and so I continue down to the beach past this stand of pine trees. And as I clear the stand of pine trees, I see that there is an individual squatting at the at the water's edge, like doing something in the water, pretty much just sitting on his heels. And it was like this humanoid figure. And uh, now in my lifetime, I had already had at the age of 17, I had already had a number of unique experiences. So I've always had, you know, an open mind. I've always known that there is more to reality than what people would, would, you know, than, than, than the mainstream view of reality. So, you know, I'm an open guy, but, you know, Bigfoot was not really on my radar in those days. So as I see this humanoid figure, I just, yeah, I, I could immediately tell there was something up. Like it was, you know, not just normal, but I, I was still telling myself that it was a human. So I, you know, I, I see this figure and then I go back to my friend who's still up near the restroom area and I'm like, there's somebody down there. And, you know, we're talking about it for a second. And then I go back and, uh, I go, I like, I get so close to this individual that I'm like, you know, 15 feet away from this individual, Max, as he's sitting at the water's edge. And, and I can see that he's twirling something around in the water, just kind of, you know, you know, like half-heartedly twirling something around. And this, this whole time that I'm coming near to this individual, I get the impression of great sadness. Like, I feel this individual's sadness just emanating from this thing. And uh, it was acting kind of like a, a pouty child, like a child who had just gotten in trouble. And it's just kind of sitting there twirling something around in the water. And I, I actually feel that as I was approaching it, like it was making this kind of, you know, really sad, mewling, kind of moaning, pathetic sound. And uh, like, so just immense sadness coming from this thing. So I get right up behind it and I say, hey, what are you doing? And so right then, at that moment, it straightens its back up and, and I could just see the massive width of his shoulders and this enormous trapezius muscle. And as he straightens up, like the hair separates on his shoulders and, and I could see the hair doing this against the moonlit water of the lake. And uh, then he looks over his right shoulder at me, just kind of, you know, just kind of glancing in his, out of his peripheral vision. And I could see like the profile of his head and his face. Right then, uh, the, the word boxy popped into my mind, like in terms of the shape of his head. It looked like he had a boxy square head. And I could see a heavy brow ridge. I could see a, a nose that was like a human's, but it was smaller in proportion to the face than a regular human nose. It was closer to the face. And, uh, and so like he just kind of looks at me over his shoulder for a second, and then he just goes right back to what he was doing, looking at the water, twirling this limp thing around in the water. So all of this is pretty much unique behavior in the broader context of general Sasquatch Bigfoot sightings and encounters. Uh, I, I would like to hear from you, Bobo, you know, compare and contrast the two, like this type of experience uh, compared to other experiences and, and, and how it differs. I want, I want to hear your ideas about the difference in behavior. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing playing with like a, 
because you the one you saw was big like it was like a big adult like or maybe not a full adult but it was, how big do you think it was seven and a half foot it must have been you know that's that's i'm glad you asked me that um i was slightly uphill from this individual because we were on a sandbank that sloped a little bit downward into the water and uh, he was right at the water's edge i was uh behind him like 10 or 15 feet so i was a little bit uphill from him and when he straightened his shoulders up he was uh his head must have come up to like my mid chest area and i'm six feet tall i was six feet tall at the age of 17 when this happened so you know if his if if i'm standing uphill from him and when and, and he's squatting on his heels and when he straightens up his back the top of his head comes up to my mid chest that tells me that this is a very tall individual. I mean, I think he was full grown, but like at the same time, he was, I feel that he was like in his late adolescence to early adulthood. I, I sensed immaturity in him, but physically he was, he was a big boy, no doubt. Right. Yeah. You guys are probably on about the same plane, you know, like the equivalent of a 17 year old boy going into manhood. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Like we, we were we were kind of simpatico in that, in that sense. We're, we're like in the same kind of place in our lives. And that, that brings up a whole bunch of good points because since you and I have been talking about this encounter, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot more and a lot of strange things have occurred to me. Like he knew that we were coming, like he heard the car he saw the headlights, he heard me park, he heard us come down. He had every opportunity to get away, but he didn't. He just stayed there. And then I went up and I talked to him, and he still stayed there. He didn't leave until after I went back to my friend and I said, that's a fucking Bigfoot, let's get out of here. And then we, we, we at that point, in fact, drove my car from that parking lot into a, another parking lot that was like at a 90-degree angle from this parking lot where I could uh, go to the front of that parking lot and shine my headlights on the beach where I had just been. So I did that. And at that point I didn't see anything, but my friend saw, uh, eye shine coming from the, from inside the tree cover. So like at that point, after I left, he left and, and he didn't attempt to leave at any point before that. I mean, what does all this say to you, Bobo? Yeah, it's almost because I've talked to people that said they, well, for one thing, as far as the twirling like a stick around the edge of the water, I've heard that and it's always been from small ones. Like yours is the biggest one I've heard of doing it, but that would make sense though if it was, you know, physically getting big, but still mentally, you know, like a high school boy, he'd, you know, could still be doing the same thing that the young ones do. But that that's, uh, I've heard that observed behavior with them with sticks or whatever, you know, like some chunk or whatever, but usually it's a stick twirling it in the, in uh, water or um, like at a like a um, ant hole or something, like they'll be messing around like with a stick, kind of just poking. And whenever people see them doing that, they seem like they're real languid. You know, like they're they're not like they almost want like sympathy or like a hug from the human. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like they seem like they're not fleeing. Like they kind of want to make a connection. It seems like. Yeah, that's that's the impression that I'm getting. And you know, you've you've a number of times now you've told me like what a missed opportunity this was for me to take off and like I I think that that's even more true 
than than I had at first realized because you know I, I I think you're right. I think he did want some kind of interaction. Like how how would interaction go at that point? Like what should I have done? What should somebody do in that situation? And how could it be constructive? I heard just talk real low and gentle, and um, you know just keep your hands you know where they can you're not like doing any threatening poses or act you know holding something like it's a weapon and just uh talk calm and cool and uh yeah i mean it's, it's easy to say and you know a lot a lot of times that people that seem that they keep their cool and, and deal with them is uh women like they they just they uh i guess well they seem to act a lot mellower towards women and generally overall anyways way less aggressive to women but um and you know also children you being 17 you know you're sure you sense that youthful youthfulness about you um it's it's, it's impossible to say because almost no one hangs out and tries to make contact you know they usually people just take off like you know you did i mean 99.9999 percent of people would have took off right then yeah so it's, it's there's a lot of missed opportunities not a lot but i mean there's missed opportunities like that and i've, I've also talk to people that said wounded ones have like seen that they've come for help, you know, like they've come up injured and they're, they're, you know, limping or holding a wound or they got a big open gash or something. They'll come out like they want, they want help for that. Right. I've talked to two people that have seen them approach um, ambulances. No kidding. Yeah. I want to, I want to hear about that. I've never heard that before. The one I can think of off the top of my head was, um, the ambulance driver was on DK Road, so a famous road up in southwest Washington, the Olympic Peninsula, down near Tolola on the coast. And he was driving um, down DK, and he had his lights and uh, sirens on. And this Bigfoot came out, and I guess it was holding its arm like it was, looked like it was like it had a broken shoulder or something like that. It was it was in, it was injured. And it had blood on it too, and it kind of made a gesture towards the ambulance as it was going by around a turn. They showed himself and like kind of was gesturing like it needed help. Like they were like, I mean, that if that was true, then that's how smart they are. Like they, they know that ambulances take people away that are, you know, they've had to have seen that hundreds of times, you know, and it was just, you know, car wrecks or logging accidents. And, you know, here comes an ambulance and then the injured person gets put in it and taken away. So if that was the case, the thing was showing itself to the ambulance because it was injured. That's, Pretty amazing, and that yeah, uh, Paul Graves actually spoke to the to the people involved in that one. Whoa, you see, okay, some little thing like that, one little encounter like that, can actually provide us all kinds of insight into into their behavior, their mentality, etc. It gives us one little one little encounter like that can give us actually so much information because that that implies so much it implies that like you said they're so intelligent they know actually what an ambulance is and what it does and its purpose and uh from there we can then infer that they not only observe and and are intelligent but that they communicate they have they must have a way of conveying this information to one another because not every sasquatch has seen an ambulance uh, right. so, so that tells us 
the, the probability of language. And that also tells us that they pass down information generationally. So they, they, they must have some sort of sense of history. Uh, there, there's so much that one little thing like that can tell us. And so I, I kind of want that to be like, like a, a lesson for, for everybody who has, you know, any kind of encounter. We can learn so much just from, you know, any little thing that we experience with these individuals. So I, I just hope we always keep our minds open to that. Yeah, because, I mean, I've always said people go, I've always said people way underestimate their intelligence, you know, like, but that would be, that's, I mean, if that was the case, it really was identifying, you know, help associated with that ambulance. And then to show, show himself being injured, that is a whole nother level of intelligence. Right. Because right. I hear people say like that. That's what when people say, like, they might not even know, they might, they might even know what guns are. I'm like, if you think they might know what guns are, you don't know jack shit about Sasquatches. They know what guns are 100%. Absolutely. And there again, not every Sasquatch has seen a gun, but every Sasquatch I'm willing to bet would, would know to be wary of a gun. So that, again, says that they communicate these things to one another. I don't know if there's any, I don't know if there's any that haven't seen a gun. I think they, I think they all have. Why? Um, there's a lot of, I mean, everyone out in the bush is usually carrying guns, you know, at some point. I mean, they, I mean maybe, if, maybe if they're in the middle of a national park, they might not know, but I think they, I think they, uh, they communicated enough with each other. I, I think, I think they have a language. I think they have, you know, a culture. I think they have, um, you know, have abstract thought on some levels. And I think they uh, communicate, and I think they all know what the bang stick is, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's just my personal belief. And I, I think either they, you know, if the thing lives in the middle of Yosemite, it's not seeing hunters, you know? But I think they'd still, they'd still know about it from other, other ones. Exactly, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, even if they haven't seen something like a gun, they still know what to be wary of because they talk to one another. Yeah. Well, even dogs, you, you point a rifle at a dog, like it, you know, it puts its tail between its legs and goes away. Sure. Yeah. Like my mom, uh, like a few years ago, she had a dog that she got, you know, like this dog had had previous or a previous family that it had been with. And, uh, apparently like this family, unfortunately had abused this dog. So every time you take a coat hanger out of the closet, this dog would get really nervous and start shaking and maybe piddle or something. So this dog, you know, knew what a coat hanger was and, you know, recognized it and knew that it was something to be wary of. So, I mean, you know, any, any animal that, that has any sort of survival instinct is going to know from experience what things can hurt it. And, uh, but, but with, in the case of the Sasquatch, like, there, there, there is, there is evidence of a communication there because, uh, like they, they're not all going to experience the same things and yet they all know what to be wary of, or so it seems to me. I mean, I think the best evidence so far suggests that they are all informed of, of what to be wary of. Right. Yeah, I think we're on the same page there. Yeah. 
I mean, in terms of the things that they all are aware of, like I would be able to say personally that they they all see our roads, they all see our weird looking lights down below, they all see, you know, our structures, they see our trash. You know, they they know what we are, what we do, what things belong to us. And uh and and, and you know, so so they are all aware of us to a, a great extent, but that doesn't mean that all of them personally come into contact with all the things that are dangerous about us. And, and so the fact that, that they would know to be wary of a gun says to me that they, that they tell each other about guns. But, I mean, you're right. Like, any, any animal, you know, who has something pointed at them, they're going to know, oh, this is a threat. So, I mean, there is that as well. But I, I personally feel that they're definitely telling each other about guns. And as far as language goes, I mean, you know, there's this bit of folk wisdom that goes way back uh, that they understand all native languages. Now, I personally interpret that to mean that, like, a Sasquatch in a given area, there are those who believe that that means that every Sasquatch understands all native languages. Now, I, I wouldn't necessarily think that to be the case. I would think that that would mean that the Sasquatches in a given area would understand uh, more or less this particular native language, and then a Sasquatch on the other end of the continent would understand a, a different native language and so on. And uh, English has been on this continent long enough that they would understand English. Um, and it would certainly behoove them to understand our language. That would give them a strategic advantage, a tactical advantage, a survival advantage. Uh, so I, I think very much that they understand our language, they have their own language, they even incorporate our languages into their language, and they, they communicate with each other about these things. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's interesting was the people, the tribes of the Pacific Northwest, they just have a relationship with these things like no other tribes around the country. I mean, they're so intricately inter intertwined with them. Um, maybe the... The uh, Seminoles in Florida, they had a very tight relationship according to their uh, verbal history. And they said the reason they were able to push so far into the, the Everglades and get so far down into Florida was they were able to, even though there wasn't, they were a smaller tribe than some of the tribes they were running into, like the Minnesuke, and I hope I said that right. And some of the other tribes that were indigenous down there. The Seminoles came down from Georgia and they said that they would fight during the day and at night, the Sasquatches that came with them would take over and they'd fight. They'd attack the other tribes at night, so they never got to sleep. So, like, while the Seminole warriors were resting, that the other Bigfoots would, you know, harass them all night and, you know, kill guards and just terrorize them. And that, that's how they were able to take over such a huge section of Florida so quickly. So, that, that's, that's pretty interesting. And then, um, but on a more recent note, I mean, that was hundreds of years ago, but on a more recent note, I'm in contact with a native woman up in Washington Olympic Peninsula and her tribe, uh, each, uh, like, well, for the main food sources, like there was a family that knew, like their job was to teach all their kids, you know, they were the specialists on elk. There was another family that was, knew everything about salmon. Like, you know, they pay close attention to the water levels and what signs like when the runs are coming so they could know when to put the nets out that sort of stuff. Um, there's another family that would know all about wolves. They're trying to know about uh, uh, deer. And so th their family was the Sasquatches. Uh, the, her, her husband's family was the Sasquatch family. Like they were the ones that, you know, s that kept the knowledge of the, of the Bigfoot. Mm. And she 
had, I never got to meet him, but she was a wealth of information. What she told me was that when she was a girl, she was told, cause she, she was the first generation really to speak English. And it, she said that when they first came in and yanked the kids out and sent them to boarding schools, there was the older generation and a lot of them died from diseases, introduced diseases and such. So there was like a kind of fast generational change and they, you know, they would beat the kids, you know, for speaking native tongues. So they, they forced them to speak English. So she said it took two generations of them learning English for the Sasquatches to kind of came up because what she said was that they communicated by a third, like hand gestures and miming stuff, a third telepathy, and then a third native words. And so, she said when they switched to English, it just threw them way off. And it took, it took the Sasquatches, she, she said, like, you know, 30, 40 years to pick up the English words. Let, let me make sure I'm understanding everything you're talking about right now. Uh, when you say a third spoken language, a third telepathy, and a third, what was the third thing? Uh, native tongue. Right. Okay. Now, when you say that, you are talking about are you talking about the native people's interaction with the Sasquatch or? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that they, they, they use these three different methods to communicate with the Sasquatch. No, it's all, all at once. It's all, it's all at once. Like the, the, they'll mime things and say, you know, key words. So yeah, you know, you can imagine, um, they're kind of thought projecting and making the hand gestures and they'd know a few words like, like Chinook, you know, or Skookum, or you know, they're referring to themselves as Skookum, or they're talking about Chinook, you know, like the fish, and they might be, you know, like gesturing um, how they, they want to trade fish for for bear meat or whatever it is. Right. Okay. Wow. That in itself, right there, is is so interesting. First of all. I mean, you know, even the, the, the natives from tribe to tribe, they have their own sign language that they would use to communicate across their, their own language barriers from tribe to tribe. Um, so, so they're incorporating some of this as well into their communication with the Sasquatch, along with telepathy. Like, did she, did she elaborate on that part at all? Like, did this come in mental images or what? Um, well... I think uh, you just hear it in your own language. Okay. Uh, yeah. Because I've I've got I mean it could totally I, I've got a, a, I'm I'm uh, I don't want to select everyone knows my story but I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have heard me say this a hundred times but I've had a couple of encounters where I had what was clearly not my voice in my head like it wasn't an external voice but I got a loud and clear message in the presence of a Sasquatch and it could have been totally triggered by just extreme like adrenaline or uh, a pheromone secreting like the pheromone or it could be uh, infrasound like this infrasound, you know, can cause like audio hallucinations and that sort of thing. You're hearing things that, you, that aren't there. Um, so it could have, it could have, you know, hit me with an infrawave sound and, and that's what I, that's what, the, what my brain turned it into or just a big adrenaline rush in my brain you know, made that up itself. I mean, but I heard the first time I had my real, for sure, close encounter with the Sasquatch, like the first time I knew they were absolutely 100% there and real, it, the, it charged, bluff, a couple of them bluff charged me. The big, huge one got behind me and I was turning around real slow and 
got my uh, little disposable. This is it was twenty years ago last month actually. Oh. It was my twentieth anniversary of my sighting. Oh, happy anniversary! Thank you. And uh, when I turned around, uh, not my you know, my sighting. Yeah, my sighting too. But this was five days before my first sighting. Same same general area. Uh, I was going to turn around and take his picture. I was gonna, I was wound the camera up and I pressed a little button to make the flash come on. You remember those cardboard cameras you drop off like a pay less or something? They'd come back and they'd develop it for you. You'd have a roll of film and it was just a disposable cardboard camera. It was one of those. Right. And it was a 35 millimeter or whatever. And it takes decent pictures up close. Like a, it had about a 15 foot range at night, 12 foot range at night. This thing was like five feet, three feet behind me. I mean, it was right, right behind me. And it started growling. And the lower the growl got, the more I felt this intense, like, wave coming out of it, which I uh, interpreted as infrasound, because I mean, what people call being zapped or whatever. And then I said, all right, Buzz. I was talking to myself, you know, in my head, going, all right, turn around right now and just turn around, snap it. It might kick you, it might smack you, but just hold on to that camera and curl up in a ball and just ride it out. You know, he's he's not going to kill you. He might just smack you around and hopefully... <laughs> so I, I, as, soon as I, as soon as I turned my shoulders a little bit to take, I got this loud voice in my head that just goes, if you take my picture, I'm going to kill you and no one's ever going to find your body. Oh. In like a very hostile, violent tone. Whoa. Holy and shit. Wasn't, yeah, and then I had another one when I was at Tom Powell's house. Actually, you know who Tom Powell is? He wrote those locals and shady neighbors. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Me and Cliff were sleeping in his backyard. This is, I don't know, 2007 or something like that. And we were sleeping in his backyard and he hasn't come in his backyard. It's a little, it's a tiny strip of woods that comes from the river for a few hundred yards. You know, it's only like 50 foot wide strip of trees and it goes up to a cliff. It goes up to a, a county road above that, about 30 feet up, 40 feet up. So it's just a strip of woods. And I started hearing, uh, Branches breaking because we went down. I did all these aggressive calls. Down. We did a big, like, five mile, four mile hike loop around the river there and came back at like two, three in the morning. We all went to bed. Cliff passed out. And I was laying there and all of a sudden I hear a snap. And uh, it was weird too because I've, I've heard, uh, I always kind of tripped on this. Then I heard other people say the same thing was they, they almost think they can project it and it could totally, it's most likely my own imagination or my own brain causing this subconsciously. But I got images of them, like I had, like they, I've had them, like it's almost like they're projecting what they look like to me, like introducing themselves, kind of maybe. But um, all it did was, uh, so I heard a branch break up, you know, hundred yards something down. Then I heard another one break a couple minutes later, you know, maybe seventy-five yards down or something like that. Then the next one, the third one was, it was just a loud crack and it was directing the tree line about less than a hundred feet from us. Yeah, way less than a hundred feet maybe 50 feet straight in front of us in the tree line and just stopped. And I got this very loud in my head, we're here. And I got like this mental image of them. Whoa. Holy shit. I sat there and listened. I never heard them move away. I never heard anything else. But um, on that property, Tom would find them, they'd break branches, they'd snap them, then bend, like, bend them like a candy cane hook. And they'd, and they'd, loop, they'd hook them over a branch like way up in the air, like nine to 12 feet up. Whoa! Uh, they would they would bend these bend these uh, branches into a hook shape and then hang them on on branches. You're saying? Yeah. And it, like this is a sign or a marker or or something. He, he doesn't know what it means. He doesn't know what it signifies. He just, he just knows when they're around and he hears them and he'll find those. He'll hear like a big 
branch break and some cracking sounds, you know, they'll snap it up and they'll, you know, crack it some more bandit, you know, a hook shape and then just hook it onto a branch up above. Whoa. I hadn't heard about that. Actually, you say you've talked about these publicly before, but I don't think I've, I've, I was aware of any of this. This is fucking amazing. <laughs> oh, then my other, my other, uh, my other one was, and this one to me is probably just my, was my own subconscious feeling guilty, but we were tracking, uh, uh, I was got on this family unit for a while. It was a mama, you know, like 14 inch prints, 14 and a half, um, or you know, between 14 and 15. And then there were smaller ones, nine and seven inches. Yeah. And um, I was trailing them around. I was getting, I, I think I found their pretty much their, you know, zoned in on their bedding area. They didn't find the beds, but I quit going up in there because one day um, I just started getting like these crazy headaches. And I felt like I was getting like what they, what you read, if you ever read about the medical description of infrasound, it's effect like in a, like Department of Defense and the Pentagon's run trials on it and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It'll say these, these things kind of the, the people they tested on report these things, these kind of sensations, this and that. But and I was feeling guilty about you know harassing a mom and her kids, and I got this this message like I was like I was you know I was saying um yeah I was saying out loud hey I'm here because uh, I was dropping off tons of food out there like really good food like smoked salmon and dried fruits and fresh fruits and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Hey, I just, and I thought, I thought I was making like a, but I was feeling like I was being in for something. I said, um, I said out loud that I was also projecting the thought. I just want to be friends. Here's some gifts. I'm sorry. I don't mean to disturb you. And, and she was just like, get the F out of here. Like it was all hostile. It was no, like people talk about like forced friends and which I'm sure is, could be possible if, if they did if they in fact are capable of doing some kind of thought projection i was always taking an aggressive but i uh, take aggressive approach there i never threatened them but i mean i'd, I'd go you know bang trees and then leave food they, ne- they never touched the food and um that, not that i know of. i mean there's times i left food there and i had to leave you know but like whenever i checked it the next day if i was there for multiple days in a row i would check it and they, they never touched it and the weird thing was is most um, it never got touched by any animals when I'd leave it for them. That's weird. Yeah, maybe banana slugs. But uh, so that time, and then the last thing, it, the last thing I got like at the end of it was, you know, I was saying like, I'm sorry, like, you know, just, you know, hey, you know, I'll, I'll leave you some snacks or if you guys already, you know, medicines, you know, you have toothache or something, just let me know. And and uh, she, she, the message I was per- interpreting in my head was leave us alone. And then the last thing was, I was like, well, I really want to make friends. And the last thing I got in my mind was we have a protector. And all of a sudden I got like the image of the one I'd seen a few years earlier, that big first one I saw the first, the giant one I saw the first time I saw one was about, Oh, I don't know, 15 miles from there something like that, 10 miles from there. And, uh, so I kind of, I don't know. I mean, that, it sounds loony. If someone's you know just need all this stuff, it it just sounds like that guy's insane. I I admit the most on that one especially the most likely thing was just my guilty conscience for harassing this family group, you know, with the young ones. Mm-hmm. And then it was just when I, if I did get an infrasound of that, it just if it was in fact infrasound, not just me feeling real guilty, like that caused that whole scenario. Right. 
but uh, these I don't even know where to start. This is this is amazing. Um, I mean, I know you're leaving your your mind open to the possibilities, but you tend to think like, oh, it's it has this physical uh, explanation. Is is that kind of your way of thinking? Well, I mean, I experienced it, and I just say what I experienced and how I interpreted it, but I don't know the actual mechanizations of the brain that you know, as far as the whole thing, like what actually, what was the source? Right. Was it, was it internal or was it external? Right. Or was it physical? But it felt or... external. It felt external. Yeah, it felt external. Um, like, you know, it's funny because I know, you know, Meldrum, you know, like he, he's not into that kind of stuff. And I just said, you know, one time I was talking to Jeff and I said, Dr. Meldrum, I said, Jeff, I mean, you, you go to church and you, you pray like if you have a sick, like your kid's sick or something, you pray, right? He goes, yeah, yeah. And I said, you yell out, you know, like, hey, God, you know, you, you, is there a bunch of people yelling in church? And he said, no. And I go, do you think God can hear people when they pray? And he said, yeah. I said, well, then that means we're, and can people receive messages from God? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, that means we, ha- are the, we have the ability in our brain then to thought project and receive thought projection back if that's what prayer is. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. And that, that touches on my own feeling about all of this. Um, we are all part of this body of consciousness. Now, I'm just speaking from my own point of view here. And I'll, I'll say, you know, it's an informed point of view. I've spent my life, you know, delving into these topics. Um, so we're all part of this infinite body of consciousness. God, you know, we, we are the, the, the product of God. We were created by God. And as such, we have access to that consciousness, this infinite body of consciousness. And so we absolutely communicate in this completely non-physical way that is, you know, related to the, the whole consciousness of existence. And, um, and as such, we can communicate with one another like that. And uh, the fact that we have these communications with the Sasquatch could indicate the type of spiritual being that they are. Or, I mean, it, it also relates in the fact that all life is an emanation of, of God and, and is part of this consciousness that is the infinite body of God. So, I, you, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's just a natural thing that we're all capable of doing. And I feel that we are at a point in human civilization where we have forgotten that, whereas the Sasquatch have not forgotten that. And being an, in- an intelligent being, an aware being, they're in touch with their true nature, whereas we're not. So something that is completely natural to both of us, both us and the Sasquatch, it's, it's lost on us where it's not lost on them. Right. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you're just sitting around watching football and NASCAR on the weekends and drinking beers and, you know, not, you know, and it, that, that person, their conscious level versus like you take a Tibetan monk that's meditating for 20 years in the Himalayas. Right. You know, like who's going to be more likely to pick up like, uh, that kind of, if that communication, nonverbal communication is possible, who's going to pick it up? Exactly. Exactly. So it, it's like a imagine it's like a muscle or any other skill. You have to use it and practice it to use it effectively. Absolutely, yes. 
very well put. And, uh, you know, like like you're saying, you're using the example of, you know, watching TV and drinking beer and stuff. So we, we, we live in a culture where we kind of distract ourselves with our own comforts and our own interests, et cetera. But it, and so this can have the effect of removing us from our own nature and our own awareness of our nature and ourselves. So I think these are reasons why we've kind of forgotten that, that part of ourselves. And, and I think you put that very, very well just now. Oh, thanks. You just feel like I'm just stumbling around verbally and <laughs> never get my point across. No, you, you got it across perfectly. So since you know, I mean, you know, everybody in the community, I, I think you must know Kathy Blunt. Do you know her? Oh, what, is she out of Washington? Uh, she was in Washington. Now she's, uh, on, in, in the coast, uh, on the coast in Oregon. Yeah. God, I'm trying. Oh, Kathy Blunt. I know. I, uh, yeah, uh, I can't put a face to the name. Kathy Blunt. She wrote a book called my journey into myth and mystery, the search for Sasquatch. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I have a copy of that somewhere. I don't think I read it. I might have just skimmed it. I don't think I read it. I know I didn't read it. She's an interesting lady. Uh, yeah, actually, um, in the as she uh, writes her name on the book, it's K.J. Blunt, and it's B-L-O-U-N-T. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I went camping with her recently, and uh, she she mentioned experiences very much like what you talked about. Um, you know, just like she was in a place where she just wanted to be, she was just hanging out. And then all of a sudden she, she received those very strong messages in her mind, just like what you're talking about. And that was, it's an experience that is reported so much. And people have such a strong sense about what is happening when it's happening that, I mean, it's, it's something, there's something happening there. And she was explaining all this stuff to me. And it's, it's very much like what you're talking about. And, um, actually when we were camping, uh, we, we both heard a, a female voice. Now I want to, I want to go over my, my recent experience with you and, uh, and, and hear what you think about it. Like, so this guy, Kip, who, who, uh, was on my show a few weeks ago, uh, it, the, the, the title of that show was summer of Squatch Kip part one. So Kip last summer, he was uh, bugging out in this place in Southern Oregon. Uh, he, was, he was trying to escape the pandemic. So he took his RV up to this really remote spot in Southern Oregon. And he was there for like six months. And, and he had this, these ongoing experiences. And uh, like it, he actually uh, painted a rock that looked kind of like a Sasquatch head. So he painted it to look like a Sasquatch head. And he put it outside his RV. And then after he did this, like the, the, these experiences he was having escalated. So, so Kip, just a few, a couple weeks ago, he took us up there, Kathy and I, uh, and so we were all, the, the three of us were camping at this spot and like the three of us were sitting around the first night, you know, talking and listening to music and stuff. And then Kathy went into her tent and, uh, Kip and I were still out, uh, listening to music. And then, and then I heard a female voice. Like I, I could hear it just sounded like a human female, but I couldn't make out the words. So I said to Kip, did Kathy just say something? He, he didn't know. So the next morning I talked to Kathy and she said that she, she heard me say that and no, she had not said anything, but she had heard the same voice. And she said that it was coming 
from uh, the top of the ridge, you know, right behind our tents, uh, just on the other side of the fire road. Like there's this, there's this, uh, you know, there's a steep cliff that's got a lot of tree cover. And then the top of the cliff is right at the edge of the fire road. And she said, that's where this female, female voice had come from. You know, there was that the first night. We, there were a bunch of little communications. Like, it's funny that you mentioned a, a mom and her young because that's what—that's the impression that I got of what was going on in, in this place. I think there was one mother and her young. Now, of course, I mean, there, there are probably others in the area, no doubt. But, you know, I think that was, those, those were the main two that were, like, right in this immediate vicinity. Like there, there was this fallen tree that I had been using as a toilet that was like above the edge of this same cliff, just down farther down the fire road. Across the fire road from that was this uh, cliff going upward that I had explored for footprints because it looked like there were some tracks there. And so the next day, this stick appears at the edge of this fire road pointing from this down tree that I had been using as a toilet and pointing toward the cliff that I had explored for footprints. And, uh, and, and then there was a, a second communication with sticks where Kip and I had walked, uh, we had gone to the other side of the mountain, and we had walked down this old, old, overgrown logging road. And we went down this road, and we were uh, just down there for like 15 to 20 minutes just checking it out, and then we came back up the fire road, and these two very large sticks had, or, or branches had been placed in this perfect X formation right on the fire or right on this old logging road, you know, clearly intended for us to see. And we found all sorts of sign, uh, you know, shortly thereafter. We found a lot of very small sign, like a lot of indistinct stuff, but it was all very small. But then it rained. And, uh, and on that same, uh, fire road where, you know, this toilet situation had gone on after the rain, uh, I found this perfect, perfect print that was, you know, probably around 14, 15 inches. And, uh, it, it, you could see where she had stepped with her foot onto the fire road and, and her wet foot, uh, made contact with the wet pine needles. The pine needles stuck to her foot. And as she stepped away, she carried away the pine needles, leaving a perfect negative impression of her footprint. And I feel that she was doing this on purpose. I feel that there, you know, these were definite intentional communications. So whereas in your situation there was that hostility, I feel like in this situation she was kind of feeling us out. Like she wanted, I feel like she wanted communication. So like there's that contrast there where you know, you know, there's a total contrast in behavior and, and, and I feel a, a contrast in intention as well. Like, you know, obviously sometimes they're going to tell you to piss off, but then other times I, I feel like they, you know, they, they want to, they're, they want to feel you out to see if, uh, to see if, you know, you're worth communicating with. And I think that's what she was doing on this particular occasion. Now, Kip had been there last summer, so she obviously would remember him. But, you know, the, she, there were two strangers there, so I think she was kind of feeling us out, you know, because she wanted communication. But, you know, we couldn't spend six months up there like he did last summer, so we were only there five days, so we could only accomplish so much in this period of time. But, you know, it's it's like there's this whole thing in there that, that we're touching upon with those communications, the telepathic communication, 
the you know the 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 limbs the the varying intentions i it just all feels very related like it's pointing to one central thing that we need to explore and i'm kind of rambling about the whole thing but like it's it's like this whole complicated complex thing and we need to look at that aspect of the phenomenon is any of this making sense yeah totally yeah yeah that's the thing that's why it's it's uh it's kind of crucial for having a a, like a a resident you know that someone that lives there you know there's actually like you know like some uh year-round or at least seasonal living situation where they're there all the time yes like to get that communication going like to be productive i think productive research wise i mean i know plenty of people that go out in the woods and they can camp at certain spots and they'll come around, but it's never the same as the people that have them coming in their yard all, you know, for year after year, that sort of thing. I'm sure you must be familiar with Janice Carter, right? Yeah. I mean, that one, there's so much wacky stuff mixed in with, uh, you know, totally believable stuff. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to know what's going on there. I mean, cause uh, Matt Pruitt is a good buddy of mine. He's a, he's the producer of our, podcast he went with her you know out and she goes come on we're gonna go. i'm gonna take you to one of these people and she went out and did her little thing it wasn't at the farm it was uh, a little ways from there and they came like they showed up and like Pruitt was just astounded holy shit I-, I knew that she had done that with somebody but like this is first-hand stuff or well at least second-hand stuff like your producer was there that's cool yeah that was a long time ago but yeah i mean she definitely definitely had it there but then it's kind of like, you know, if you're seeing these things and interacting with these things that everyone tells you, everyone's telling you doesn't exist, but you see them and you inter- interact with them, you know, it, it, it seems like that could make you kind of wacky to just, just that thought, like you, like the king wears no clothes, you know, like everyone's talking about the king's great clothes and you're sitting there seeing this naked guy. So you're wondering like, you know, it's got to mess with your sense of perception and reality. So, I don't know. I mean, some of that stuff just seems so crazy coming out of there. But so are you saying that it's, it's just so crazy. It's, you know, like it's true, but it just seems so crazy to people that it's, it's kind of hard to bridge that gap in understanding. Or are you saying that it's so crazy? Like you don't know if it's true or not. Which one of those are you saying? I'm saying, uh, I, I don't know what to, I know some, I know some of it's real, but then, you know, did this alternate because she was basically living in an alternate reality but it was it was reality at, at certain levels i think like there was bigfoots there they've been there on the same farm for generations we know they do that same thing like they you know if there's no reason to leave they're not going to leave if it's not like condos going up and all that so i think um a lot of these cases the person uh is a little bit like uh i don't want to say nutty but just they live in such an alternate reality from the rest of the world, except for people like us who can, can, you know, accept what they're saying on certain levels. But yeah, some of the stuff, some of the stuff they said just sounds outlandish, but then it could all be, it could, she could be telling the truth there. Not, not that she's lying, but she might be interpreting everything correctly. And it's just, I'm not, you know, I'm not hip enough to Sasquatch to, to understand that, that it's all real, you know, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's it's just so tough to say with people like that. I mean, then like Igor Borstev's whole thing, you know, like call, having the Bigfoot call him at that conference and the guy 
translating, you know, like that stuff just, to me, that stuff's just way too out there. Well, the translating stuff, yeah, I, I actually don't know specifically what you're talking about. I, I know what you're talking about with Igor, but I don't know specifically the, the translating part that you're talking about. But as far as Janice Carter goes, like, she was so consistent, and it was, like, off the top of her head. It wasn't even, like, stuff she had to put thought into, and it was all completely consistent. And so much of it just rang completely true anyway, like, in the context of, you know, what we do know about them. and. All this stuff. I, I feel like she was totally, you know, telling the truth. And I mean, there, there were some things that I wasn't sure about. Like she mentioned a rape and all this. And, the, and some of that just seemed, I don't know, I, some of that kind of, it, it, it gave me pause. But as for the broader experience, like, you know, even when she was talking about this Sasquatch, this female Sasquatch, begging her to let this Sasquatch kill this goat. Or this, yeah, I think it was a goat. Um, and, and so this Sasquatch was just pointing at this goat, you know, over and over again, like pleading with her, please let me kill this goat. And then, and you know, Janice just wouldn't let her do it. She was like telling this female Sasquatch, no, you can't, you can't kill the goat. And she's just kind of begging like a child. And then, you know, and then finally in, in exasperation, this adult female Sasquatch named Sheba falls onto her back you know, on the ground, just, just like a kid would do, or like you might see a primate do. And then, and then she like did this thing where she sprang up and then she went down on all fours, you know, like her feet and her knuckles. And then on all fours, she jumped into the air, you know, like in the, in this sign of frustration, you know, jumping up and down in a quadrupedal manner. It just, it rang so true. Like I have this perfect image in my mind of this happening. And I could see, you know, like, uh, I could see an ape doing this. I could see a Sasquatch, which is, you know, somewhere in that ape human area. I could see this happening and, and she didn't even have to put thought into this. Like it was just, it rang so true to me that, that, you know, yeah, I, yeah, I just, I just have no problem believing that these things that she's describing actually happen. I, I that's kind of what we're, we're talking about here. Like the, the the need to have this ongoing years long interaction with them like the more time you can spend at a place the, the the better your success is going to be and that's why you know it's ideal to be able to habituate with them on a home or a homestead and that's you know that's my ultimate goal and i'm sure that's yours as well um, oh yeah absolutely uh so like okay i want to switch gears here for a minute you and i kind of have this uh this little miniature debate going about whether Sasquatches have a mating season or not. And, uh, I like the, I'll explain the, the, where this comes from, like the, the origins of this particular debate. There is a Karuk elder in my area who goes up to a certain area, a certain mountainous region every month on the full moon to record Sasquatch mating calls. I know that you're familiar with this because I, I came across this information through you, so you know very well what I'm talking about. And, and I looked at this area, I looked at the natural features of this area, and I have figured out, I think, why he has success in this area. And, and, and given, like, this area can serve as kind of like a Sasquatch 
uh, you know, a little and a little observation uh, area. It's it's kind of like a perfect place I feel to go and observe them. And I think, like, I, I know why he's had success there, and I think his success there kind of points to Sasquatches not having a mating season. But you believe that they do. And, and, and I want to hear kind of your side of that whole thing for a minute. I want to hear like all your thoughts on why you believe that the Sasquatch have a mating season. Well, just because of the, the weather, you know, like, uh, I mean, they could, they could breed you around here or like our Florida or something like that. It wouldn't be an issue probably, you know, or there's a lot of places that, like real temperate where it wouldn't be an issue, but, um, uh, just the, the, like the vocalizations, how they just you know, really ramp up, um, the, uh, aggressive, they get more aggressive. I mean, it just kind of seems like they have a mating season. Well, sure. But the same things happen with, with humans though. Like I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but as long as I'm talking, I about... didn't. Oh, okay. Um, so I mean, humans don't have a mating season, but the same thing happens. I mean, we, we tend to be more physically and sexually active during warm weather, you know? So, so, I mean, that in itself wouldn't necessarily say that they have a mating season. Uh, I I think they're definitely smart enough to know when is a good time to mate uh, so that they're, you know, like their kids aren't born at a time when they have no resources available to them, et cetera. Um, So, I mean, it's. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's perfectly reasonable to think that they would have a mating season because of that. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily say that they do. Right. No, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, they might, they might not. Right. And uh, actually, that's that's another thing that Janice Carter was saying. She was saying that they have like a six month or a, a six week menstruation cycle. Like they menstruate every month and a half or, or or something like that. Like it's it's similar to ours, but it's different. You know, it's a little bit different. Like the 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 timetable is different. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, I, I definitely think they had them on the property and. That they interact with them a lot, but um, so that's how it's like how, like how much you really know, you know, I mean, smell, I mean, smell it. Well, what she was saying was that they would, that the hair on their legs would be stained with blood. Uh, it'd be oh, all, that's right. That's right. Right. And it'd be all crusty. And then, yeah, she was saying that there would be like quite a pungent smell, like super super uh well you know just just whatever the the kind of smell you would expect but just like 10 times 80 times more than that like yeah definitely a smell going along with that so yeah i read that book 20 years ago and um i loaned it out to somebody i loaned out so many books too that i never got back that one's probably like 500 400 bucks now Oh yeah, I would imagine so. That's that's a valuable book because it's got a lot of valuable insights in it. Yeah, yeah. I got I got to get a copy. I've been looking for a copy of that for a long time. I haven't seen one pop up for years. Yeah, that's what I hear. They're like really hard to get a hold of. The one that I, I mean, I didn't even read the book. I just, I mean, I I kind of read it, but it was on YouTube. It was like a series of YouTube videos. So, I mean, okay. Yeah, yeah. You you just look up uh, fifty years with Bigfoot. Uh, the Tennessee Chronicles, I believe 50 years with Bigfoot, you know, just look that up on YouTube and you can find the whole, the whole book right there in video form. Yeah. Unfortunately, like, uh, when I really got into like the Sasquatch scene, like with other people, you know, like connected to the internet and all that, they all just poo pooed her so hard. And it kind of 
warped my perception perception a little bit because I, I thought a lot of it sounded totally believable to me too. You talked about you know the react you know like how it acted like a kid kind of, and but then the other part of me saying like like wild primates, you know they uh, or just in general primates, they don't they wouldn't succumb to like human uh, trying to like tell them what to do. You know what I mean? Like they're, they, the, the bigger, if you're bigger and stronger then you're, you're in charge. And we're, we're, if we're going to compare them to, you know, chimps, gorillas, orangutans, you know, it's like the bigger, powerful one. That's like, they don't, they don't have a sense of a, like a human sensibility about them. Something like that. Like, well, she's, you know, she's the one cooking the food. So, I'm going to, you know, listen to her or whatever, you know, like they just kind of like, if there's food to take, they'll take it. I don't know. She makes them sound like more polite, I think, than I would imagine them to be, but she could be telling the truth and she's right on and she's not having any hallucinations or, you know, weird, just weird. I mean, I guess it'd have to be a hallucination or just, you know, convincing herself, like, you know, imagining this stuff. And then she tells a story like it's, you know, she might not be lying because to her it really happened, but it might, you know, who knows if it did. But I think a lot of, I think a lot of it did. I think most of it did happen. Yeah, and as far as like the politeness goes, uh, it was she. She explained some things that were quite the opposite. Like they continued, like first of all, this relationship centered on the fact that they were feeding these these Sasquatches, this family of Sasquatches, and they would feed them every night for years and years and years, and if they didn't feed them like they'd throw a fit and they would go into their basement and yeah. smash everything and uh like they would tear all tear up all kinds of stuff and and their family was actually afraid of what these sasquatches would do if they didn't feed them so like there was there was all kinds of stuff going on and, and it totally rang true to me yeah um that native woman i told you about in washington that knows all about the sasquatches when they went to uh town where they went to town like their big treat was mcdonald's and if they came back and didn't put out a couple big macs for the sasquatch it would come up and bang the hell out of the house and break lights and smash stuff and you know raise a ruckus uh-huh there you and go and so they if they went to and did this family they had a four-bedroom house you know it was three generations living there Everyone lived in the living room. All the beds were in the living room. They wouldn't, all four bedrooms were in the back of the house that faced the wood line. No one slept in them. And it was a two story house. They said the bigger, uh, the bigger, the biggest male could reach up and tap the window in the second story bedroom window. You know, however high that is up like 12, 13 feet. Ooh, that is, that's high. That's high up. Yeah. And it would say the girl's name like in a real low guttural voice. No kidding. Yeah, like bring my bring my Big Macs. <laughs> oh man! So th- it sounds like this was an older lady, right? And it sounds like she's she's no longer with us at this point. Uh, she she's still around. She's about eighty now, I think. She's right around eighty something. Oh, okay. Because I it sounded like she was a lot older than that. That's good. Um, wow, I want to talk to she her. Had, she had another she had a, she had another great story about um. Uh, her husband's parents, when her husband was a little boy back in the, in the fifties or four, I think it was like 1951, 52, I think she said it was about anyways. Um, they came home and they, uh, found a, a, a baby Bigfoot in their garage and they were like, Oh my God. Like, cause you know, they, they know exactly what it is. 
So this would have been her mother and father-in-law. The father-in-law closed the garage door and he went out and he, you know, went out and did a little saying something and made an offering, you know, and yelled out to the woods. Like we we're not, we we're just holding your baby till you get comfortable. They, they said it was only like, you know, the size of literally like a four or five year old human, which would mean the thing's probably like just two, you know, two years old as a Sasquatch or something. This kind of points to another thing. They don't keep as close an eye on their young as I think a lot of people think they do. Because the young do get separated from, you know, I mean, it happens to all, it happens to every every species, you know, the young get separated from the, you know, those are the ones that go get eaten or whatever, you know. So they kept the, the Bigfoot and the, the baby Bigfoot in. They put water and food out there for it in there. And the thing just cried out in the garage and cried out in the garage. And uh, they they couldn't really uh, they tried to comfort it, but it just didn't want anything to do with them. And finally, on this uh, after about forty eight hours, so it happened on a Monday night. Wednesday night, they started hearing whoa and you know shrieking whistle calls and roars, and the baby started screaming and screaming. And they were like, oh, like the the, the dad was because he was the Sasquatch family. He went out there and said, I held your Baby here, it's I'm, I was waiting till you came to let it loose so to make sure it was fine so like a bear didn't get her a mountain lion. Here, here, and they he opened the door and the thing just took off on all fours and ran off to the parents and the the father came up and gave him a very stern look like you know like just like you're lucky punk like if, if there had been anything wrong you you know, like let, gave him the the uh, message loud and clear that without saying anything that if anyone messes with our young we'll kill you all. <laughs> wow. And you, you know, even as you describe that, I can see the, the, the body language that would have conveyed this, like just that, just that stern look. I, I think I know exactly in, in a, well, in a general sense, the, the, the body language that was being conveyed. And that, that sounds terrifying. You know what else? Um, yeah, her husband was actually the chief of police for the Quinault tribe out there. They're a really well-respected guy. And while he was uh, chief, he one morning went up uh, way up the Ho River, way up past the campground to uh, hunt elk. And he was, it was a you know foggy, misty morning, and it was the sun was coming up, and it was you know October, and so it was you know mostly you know sunny skies, not not a, like summer gloom, but it, you know the it's that river fog in the in the night, and it was just just as the sun was breaking over the ridge line, it was it was a the rains hadn't really started yet, so the water was pretty low for the hoe. And there was a huge, you know, long, wide gravel bar, you know, a couple hundred yards long, wide by, you know, a couple miles long. And he's watching this big herd of elk coming down through the mist. You know, he's sitting there, he's got his scope on him. Then he looks and he realizes, you know, it's a herd of about 30 or 35. He realizes they're all Bigfoots of different sizes and they're all walking down with this huge male in front, this giant, big, powerful male in the front. They were kind of just uh, scattered along. They weren't, usually when I hear about them walking in groups, it's single file. They said this one was uh, looser, you know, just they're kind of walking at their own speed and, you know, looking for food along the way, like turning over rocks and just kind of moseying down the river bar. And he watched this for a while. Then, um, they got, you know, maybe a quarter mile away, and the the big one uh, looked at him. Just his head snapped up and looked right at him, like like through the scope, looked right at him. And he just said, oh, "I'm out of here," because he had a long hike back. And he hiked back. Um, 
and the, she also told me that her family told that his family told her that what her husband told and what her parents told him was that yes, they all get together. The Bigfoots all get together every uh, spring, and then I've also heard in the fall. In the spring, they get together way back up in the center of the Olympics. They'd meet over that way towards uh, more on the western side, of, uh, the eastern side of the peninsula. That was the springtime, and they'd get together and have a conclave. And they would talk and see about who didn't come back, who didn't make it through winter. Like who did, who didn't make it? There's, you know, a big, big male, old male that, you know, finally died of old age or, you know, probably broken tooth infection or something, but whatever, if there was a, a new territory opened up, they'd say, okay, you now are old enough to have your own territory. You get, you know, whatever, like the Cedar Creek watershed now is yours, you know, from the, ocean up to the fork of whatever that's your domain and that's how they kept from fighting each other mm. and then they get together in the fall on the west side um it's all it's completely clear cut now but and i actually went there and got the loudest power knocks i ever got and my uh, buddy that was there him and his brother um came back the next weekend and actually spotlighted two big males approaching them uh in the dark at this spot called um lone mountain on the west side of the olympic peninsula but after that huge clear-cutting operation went through there like i haven't heard of anything on that like it's uh, they clear-cut the whole hill it wasn't a mountain it was just a little mound hill a couple hundred feet high they whacked that whole thing so that that place has been dead so i don't i don't know if they're still meeting what they're what that's all about but um yeah and then you hear about those stories like uh what was it Muckaluck Charlie Muchalak Charlie up in British Columbia talked about when he got kidnapped by the Bigfoots, there was 30 or 40 of them all convened. And, uh, a, uh, a, a guy I know that knows this trapper really well up in British Columbia, just, um, this is a, another crazy story, but he, uh, just recently saw a group with multiple large male adults, multiple adult females and multiple young all gathered up in the wintertime in a small, real narrow, uh, box Canyon Valley up in British Columbia. So I think they do, they do team up and get together and it makes sense. That's what the tribes did, you know, and you can get fresh blood. So you're not interbreeding, you know, like you come together from different areas and make sure, make sure you keep the gene pool cool. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we've, we've talked about certain spots where that happens. Like I happen to live right near one of them, like right here at Mount Shasta, where they all kind of get together. That's, and, that's what the natives here say, Shasta. Right. Yeah. That, 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 they do that. And you know, like this is one of the reasons why I believe that the Bigfoot population must be so much larger than people assume it is like people think that there must be only like a few thousand a bare minimum breeding population i i think it's a lot bigger than that just because of the way they get together the the vast areas from which they they come uh combined with uh you know the, the broad range i mean they're spotted all over this continent and they're spotted with regularity all over this continent i feel that just all all the all the signs point to there being a much larger population of sasquatches than what people tend to estimate that's what i used to think but the the footprint data suggests otherwise yeah i mean i, I think there's more than people like the average person realizes um i think a lot of bigfoot researchers think there's more than there are but i mean if you go up to washington the olympic peninsula or you go around mount rainier every 
major watershed has a family in it. Right. So, I mean, like Cliff, like Cliff and those guys in Belgium, like whatever they off their, their, uh, hypothesis or whatever, they think there's just like 300 in Washington and Oregon, maybe 350, 400, uh, at the most in Oregon would be 300, Washington, maybe 350, then British Columbia, maybe, you know, a thousand mm. or something like that. Or, uh, if, if even that many, I, I think there's, you know, there, there'd have to be at least 2,500 to have a viable gene pool. And then, I mean, for all the reports around the country, um, I mean, they're, they're obviously, they're, they're all over the place, but we don't know how much, how, how big a range they're moving. That's what's so great about the Wood Ape Conservancy down the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. So they actually got that tag on what we believe was a Bigfoot. And, you know, they, they, uh, kind of got a, a idea of, of its rounds, you know, as it traveled around and, you know, it had a pretty big, you know, it could definitely account for sightings in different regions, you know, that people would call different, would say, hey, I saw one here, and then this guy saw one over there, so that's two different ones, but it was probably the same one. And then here in Northern California, they found tracks, the big, uh, the original Bigfoot track that Jerry Crew cast was found on Hyampong, you know, a few years later, 60 miles south. Mm-hmm. So they, they do get around. Yeah, for sure. They get around. There's no doubt about that. But still, like, even... Even the, the the fact that they, even aside from the fact that they travel such long distances on foot, I mean, just 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 the fact that they're spotted simultaneously all around the country, and and just these behaviors of theirs, like them coming together and dividing up territories. I mean, they have to be far enough apart, like like you're talking about right here, with with them getting together and dividing up territories. They have to be that that touches on a thought I've had recently. They have to be far enough apart where no family group exhausts the resources in their area, uh, but but they also have to be close enough together where they can, you know, interact and, and keep the gene pool fresh. So, I mean, if we combine all of this data, it seems to me that it suggests that there's quite a healthy population of them. And w- when you say the, the footprint data, are, are you talking about the relative scarcity of footprints? Yeah, and then also the repeated individuals right right yeah like it's this guy you see in you know both of these areas right the the repeat sightings of right. men. yeah well i you know i, I that that's I, I hear what you're saying um and you know you're far more experienced than i am but just my my gut feeling says there are just a shitload of them out there yeah i think there's a lot yeah i mean there's I mean, like ten thousand. i mean that's still a good amount you know throughout north america yeah that's still be I mean, it, it, it's not, and it is. Right, right. It's just kind of right there in that sweet spot. Yeah, and, then, and also just like all the reports I've gotten, like with people like report Bigfoot activity, and it turned out not to be, you know, like it was just, they get all wrapped up. Like they maybe had something happen, and then, but, you know, like they keep, the stuff keeps coming and coming, like, you know, it's, you go there and it's like, there it is, there it is. You know, it's a coyote or barred owls, you know, or, or whatever it is, you know, or just things snapping in the brush that they go, that's, that's a Bigfoot. I, I know it. And it's like, you don't know it. You just heard some rustling out there and you, you tell me there's a Bigfoot out there. Like I know from that. Well, another thing that, that made me think there was less than was when we finally got thermal imagers, so much of the stuff we thought might be Bigfoot sounds at night when you actually got the therm on it, it wasn't. Mm. 
but I mean, they're, they're, um, that spot up in Quinault, they would see a group of 15 juveniles, 13 to 15 juveniles all the time, like every other night for years. Like it was, uh, that's one thing I can take credit for, you know, like, I don't know. Yeah. I guess for Bigfoot research, I learned it from this woman up there was that they, when the, the kids get too big to carry a lot of times they'll drop them off like in a boarding school, like a place with really rich, rich resources they'll drop uh, and they'll pack up like, you know, young male lions when they get driven out of the group, like they'll, you know, there'll be like four or five, six young uh, post adolescent male lions roaming around. So they get their own territory or um, it seems that the Bigfoots will drop off. They'll be like teenagers which is why I think you get those the crazy stuff like where they sprint in front of cars. Like the ones the ones that run right in front of cars and almost get hit. The people slowing their brakes are almost always in that seven seven and a half foot range. And I think I think it's like I think it's teenage boys screwing around. They like watch this, watch the watch the hairless ones this time, you know, and you know run in front of them and see the car skid and people freak out. They just up there laughing. <laughs> yeah. It's like a bunch of teenagers hanging out downtown and doing stupid shit, like in front of Taco Bell yeah. or something. <laughs> and like mess and like messing with and messing with people, dude. Like, um, I know people that are, you know, a lot of, con, uh, people building construction projects out in virgin woods, you know, where there's no, no buildings around and they'll screw with them, you know, like mess with their tools, like hide stuff, move stuff around. Um, you know, I think I think they love watching us get scared. I think they love watching us be perplexed and puzzled. I think I think they definitely they get it. I mean, chimpanzees do right. And in fact, like I was talking to MK Davis just a few days ago, and he was telling me about the Night Runner video, like of this little. I asked him about it because it's like my favorite video of his. And uh, th- there's this little Sasquatch is doing this little side shuffle. So I so I asked him the story behind it, and and this this little juvenile had had evaded these turkey hunters, and, and like he had pulled one over on them. And so like apparently this this little Sasquatch uh, got a kick out of this, and he let out this little laugh as he was running away from the from the turkey hunters. So yeah, they they like creating mischief like that for sure. Yeah. Oh, the other thing about this um, this spot, like the where the teenagers, where they dropped them off, and this went on for generations, but it um, ended after I started going up there and really kind of, kind of interfering with them, I guess, and other, other, you know, with other guys I was there with over the years, they moved. The the, the young ones moved out of that zone. They, they're not exactly sure they went to, but well, that same um, her, her husband uh, when he was young. He was out uh, hunting one night, and he saw, uh, getting towards evening time, he saw the biggest black bear he ever saw, and all he had was a thirty thirty, and he put a couple rounds into it, and the thing ran off screaming, and he had to wait till daylight to follow it, and the next day he tracked it, and he finally, he took him all day to catch up to it. I guess it was like, uh, like November, so it was getting dark kind of early, and he finally caught up to it and he was hearing all this he was hearing the bear making these and I guess it was like a giant black bear dude like 700 pounds and uh, just a stud you know just this thing was a stud he said it was just it looked like he said it was it was the size and strength of a grizzly and he started hearing this these uh, started hearing weird noises and the bear was he and he got up to the clearing and it was in a in a in a clearing in a in a, a um, 
a clear cut and it was in the clear cut and it was uh twilight getting in the twilight and it was you know it was dark in the shadows but there was still light if you weren't in the shadows and he, he said it was kind of like the ground was moving around this bear and then he realized it was the pack of juveniles like the boarding school kids and there was um a pack of bigfoots five to six and a half seven foot tall like all 14 15 of them circling this bear and they were one would dart in and they would they would um i've heard this from other people too they would do like a hammer punch just come straight down punch like like king kong like bam and they, they'd, they'd hit it and then they'd split their hand up real quick stick their fingers into the hide and rip a chunk of flesh with hair off of it no fur shit. Off of it. whoa yeah like and then um he said he watched this for like half hour 45 minutes and the bear was you know bleeding out and he said he um, he didn't get as good a shots as he'd hoped to. Maybe he only got one round into it. Maybe he said he fired twice, but he, the second one might have just grazed it. Only one really round hit it. And he said it was such a big bear. It was just a 30-30. Um, so it, it still had pretty good energy. And then the head the, the head one, the seven-footer, let out a scream or a whistle. or I think it was a scream or a, it was a scream. And they all rushed in simultaneously and just hammer-fisted it. Just punched it just like and and sticking their fingers in like daggers and and ripping out chunks of flesh and fur at the same time and they beat the bear to death and like they killed it in like a minute holy shit and he and he got then he said he got really scared and he backed out as quietly and slowly as he could and 15 minutes later it was pitch dark and he's stumbling around in the dark with hungry pack of sasqu- sasquatches around whoa damn <laughs> that like if there's if there's a definition of terror i would say that's it yeah for sure oh man that's intense oh man okay bobo we're in the last few minutes of the show um i j- just real quick i i know that in your you know experience you come across dogman stuff all the time um now i i don't know what to think of it um I, I just wanted to ask you, like, have you, have you like come across anything that would tell you, you know, that there's such a thing as a dog man? Like, have you ever laid eyes on a dog man? No, I've never seen any sign or heard. I think I've, I don't think I've ever heard one or, um, I, those things blow my mind. Like, I thought it was all BS until a few years ago. Like I started getting like, well, maybe, maybe. And then my manager, Lee Kirkland, he, uh, He's big in the paranormal world. He saw one when he was like, I think uh, he was a teenager in Kentucky, like 25 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever. He saw he saw one right 15 feet in front of his car in high beams, walk across the road slowly in front of him. And when I heard that one, that's when I said, all right, this is real. Now, I don't think there's a, I, don't, I think the Sasquatch is a biological evolved species. Right. Dogman, that's you're, I think you're talking about straight paranormal. Yeah, two different realms there. I mean, but then there's that overlap, you know, like everything overlaps. Right. Well, I was gonna say, yeah, because I, I think that I think I think Sasquatch walks in both worlds, you know. Absolutely. But I think they're more. I think I think they they came from here. Whereas Dogman, there's no there's no uh, there's no fossil evidence or any indication that there's ever been a large bipedal wolf off ranch, you know. Right. 
Yeah. Oh, speaking of which, that reminds me, like, I wanted to ask you, you, you heard about Dragon Man, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Like, this for the, for the first time, in my awareness, they've discovered a hominin that is actually larger than us. Right. Yeah, that holds some yep. promise. I, 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 got, I got that article saved. I, uh, someone linked it on my public page, the James Faye. James Bofay finding Bigfoot Facebook page. A guy put a link on there to a cell.com or something like that. Uh, that is the scientific papers on it. Cause I want to see like what their, what their guesstimates are on size. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in finding that out. All I know at this point is that the skull itself is huge. Like it's way bigger than a oh, human. And the brow ridge. Yeah. Yeah. There was like a, but it's not, it wouldn't be a Sasquatch. Though, Cause I mean, there's no sagittal crest or anything like that, but just the fact that it, it's there. And this recently, I mean, that's, and that could be what they're seeing up in, you know, uh, Europe. Right, right. And, and, and like you said, it's not a Sasquatch, but it's, it's pointing the way, you know, it's like getting, it's honing in right. there. It's honing in on that area. So Bobo, uh, we're at the end of the show. And, and just like I knew what happened, you've said all kinds of stuff that blew my mind and you, you always blow my mind in a good way. I really appreciate it. Uh, I know you've got some stuff coming up. Like you're going to, you're going to be somewhere. What, what's going on? Oh, this July 10th, I'll be down with, uh, Cliff and I are going down to Lakeland, Florida for the first annual great Florida Bigfoot conference down in Lakeland, Florida, June, July 10th. Um, they got, you can get rooms next door for like 109 bucks at the Hyatt. It's a, it's going to be a good time. They've got a uh, Stacy Brown jr. Is going to be there and Robert Robertson. And Oh God. Sid, uh, Sedato, I believe his name is. He's uh, supposed to be like a real uh, knowledgeable guy down that Southeast part of the country. Um, so they got a pretty good lineup or a good lineup and it should be a good time. It'll be a lot of fun. It sounds like it's going to be awesome. I wish I could go. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and we're 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 going to central we're going to central Florida in July to get away from the heat of the Pacific Northwest. That's something. Who would have thought that you'd be going to Florida for relief in summer from you know <laughs> up here? Yeah, I know. It, it's it's a sad state of affairs in the Pacific Northwest where you have to go to like the most humid subtropical place on the planet, full of mosquitoes, to get away from the heat. Yeah. Well, cool, Sam. Was, thanks for having me on, man. It was a good time. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Like, I, I, I always enjoy talking to you, and you just, you know, you said all kinds of cool shit, and, I mean, there's there's so much more that I want to ask you about. We're going to have to do a part two of this. Uh, Bobo, thank you so much for being on Type 471. Take care, brother. Okay, have a good one, Sam. All right, you too. Be sure to listen to Bobo's podcast, Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. It releases every Sunday night slash Monday morning, depending on where in the world you happen to be. Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo is available on all platforms, wherever you prefer to get your podcasts. Likewise, you can find Type 471 wherever you prefer to get your podcasts. Listen on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever else you feel like listening. Be sure to like, subscribe, and follow. You can also find this show across social media, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. Just look for Type 471 Podcast. If you've had encounters with the strange and unknown and you want to share your experiences with me, email me at type471podcast at gmail.com. I'm Sam Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Type 471.